Here's a few exciting scenes from tonight's episode of The Tom Gully Show. Now, luckily, Ron had the good fortune to fall in love with Carolyn Day, an amazing person who has chronicled Ron's fight against leukemia in her book, The Last Tour. As, as he went through the, um, the whole thing with the end of his life and really searching and learning things about himself, he kind of realized it's, you know, how crazy it is that you can want to die. And then only four months later, all you want to do is live. And you're just praying that you'll live, you know, and that you won't die from cancer. It's a very unfortunate because if, he had, if it had gotten caught sooner, he might still be here now. Right. And right. that's what's really sad about it. Right. Because he was told on April 8th that he needed to get into um, treatment within a week. And, you know, MD Anderson's the top cancer center in the world with the most specialized leukemia department. They treat uh, 1,700 new leukemia patients every year. He had that resource right there less than, you know, 30, 45 minutes away. And everybody kept saying, oh, you can never go to MD Anderson. You don't have insurance. And so he ended up, you know, um, you know, he, he, he just didn't get the treatment soon enough and he didn't get the appropriate treatment soon enough. And they said, well, everything looks okay with your heart. You must be having chest pain because you're so stressed out about something. What are you stressed out about? And he said, I'm stressed out because I have leukemia and nobody will treat me. So will you please get an oncologist in here? And then, and it worked because they, they, they treated him. I'll have you tell that story. I'm, I'm going to save the Ron Eckerman will kick your ass if you come to his yard story for the very end. Uh, folks, okay. if you're listening right now, you gotta, you gotta listen to the end because one of the funniest stories you'll ever hear Involves Ron Ackerman in his front yard at a is very. It really that, is it really that funny? I didn't yes, know it was it really is, that funny. It is so it's, funny. It you know, is so funny. hilariously funny. It's not even funny. While all this was going on, you guys were posting to Facebook and letting everybody know what was going on. And of course, you know, we went through a little bit of it with you where, where there were times where you, you would post, Ron is not expected to make it longer mm -hmm. than a few more hours. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And this happened two or three times. Mm -hmm. The way that this whole thing happened and the way that you two handled it was absolutely beautiful. It was a thing of, I mean, it's obviously one of the worst things that can happen, mm -hmm. but it was done with such grace and love and reverence and respect and just, it was, it was mm -hmm. the thing that he wrote you. That just, I mean, I'm about to start crying. The, the thing that he wrote me? You are my bucket list. Yeah. Now, here's a guy who's terminal. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, just, I mean, it just floored me. Yeah, that was my birthday card. His, um, I mean, during the whole time when people were like, oh, Carolyn, I can't believe you're doing this. And I'm like, well, what else would I do? I mean, what's the alternative? Go run, you know? I would tell people, I would call people and, you know, say, you know, Ronnie's doing really bad. He's, oh, and I would tell about how horrible he was doing. And then, you know, well, can I talk to him? Yeah, but he's very tired, you know. Then I would hand Ronnie the phone and, he, you know, he had this voice. He would all of a sudden grab the phone and go, well, hello. And, and oh, hey, I'm doing fine. I'm going to kick this leukemia's ass. And he sounded like he was doing a radio show or something and he sounded so healthy and it's almost like I think people thought well Carolyn's exaggerating due to some violent content parental discretion is advised <laughs> 
It's time, America. Mr. and Mrs. North and South American, all the ships at sea, let's go to press. So sit back, buckle in, place your tray table in its upright locked position, and get ready for big time radio, friends. It's time for... Wednesday, December 3rd, 2014, episode 230. I'm Tom Gully, and tonight on the Tom Gully Show, Ron Eckerman, who you remember from our show, survived the Leonard Skinner plane crash, but sadly did not survive his struggle against acute myeloid leukemia dying in May of this year. Ron's struggle against AML is beautifully documented by the love of his life, Carolyn Day, in her new book, The Last Tour. In the three years she knew Ron, their story goes from soulmates finding each other to discovering Ron had the illness and then his year-long fight. Oh, but don't worry, this episode is not a downer. It's a story that is full of laughter, hope, inspiration, and lots of love. And the love continues as all the proceeds of this new book go to the Leukemia Foundation. So please get it on Amazon.com. We'll talk with Carolyn Day, author of The Last Tour, detailing her relationship with Ron Eckerman and their last days together. Tonight, on this episode of The Tom Gully Show. You're listening to the Tom Gully Show. And what, what's your what's your what's your radio show? Where are your radio show hosts at? Where are your radio hosts? Where are you at? Where are you at? What's your what's your show? What's it called? Is it the podcast that's non-existent? You know what? When it launches, can I be on? Can I be on? Please, 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 please. please. Sure thing, crazy lady. Just send an email to Tom at the Tom Gully Show dot com. Boy, I have never met somebody with a more self-serving, pompous media blowhard that you give Rush Limbaugh You know, Ron Eckerman was the first really great get as a guest that we had on the Tom Gully Show. I mean, he was pretty much the perfect guest for our show. An incredibly interesting person with incredibly interesting things to say in his book, Turn It Up, brilliantly documented his time as tour manager with the band Leonard Skinnerd including surviving the plane crash, but that he was so much more than that. Even in just the conversation we had with Ron, we could tell he was an eloquent, witty, gracious man, and that's why it was such a terrible shock when we learned that Ron had acute myeloid leukemia. Now, luckily, Ron had the good fortune to fall in love with Carolyn Day, an amazing person 
who has chronicled Ron's fight against leukemia in her book, The Last Tour, Love, Laughter, and Tears, a true story of finding love, facing destiny, and battling leukemia. Welcome to the show, Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, come on, please. You, <laughs> you, you are a very incredible person. You know, this book is an emotional ride. Uh, it could have been extremely sad, but it's not. It is poignant. It's funny. It's hopeful. But at the very heart of it is a love story, Carolyn. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I don't even mean a love story. I mean a love story <laughs> with yeah. tons of O's and everything. Mm-hmm. It, it, let's just start with how you met because it's the first in an avalanche of uncanny coincidences between you and this wonderful man, Ron Eckerman. How did you guys actually meet? Well, I knew who he was my whole life. I, um, I, I, I didn't know his last name. Well, l- let, let me backtrack here. Yeah, you got to so backtrack. There's a big backtrack Have you heard here. of a town called Bartlett, Texas? Yeah, of course. Okay. My mom and his mom knew each other growing up. And um, I never met him, though. I met his mom over the years. You know, there's there's an 18-year age difference you know, between me, me and Ronnie. So... Um, I, uh, it's not like we would have ever, we would have hung out anyway when I was two right. and he was 20. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um, I had met his mom over the years and she can't, she was at my dad's funeral. I was at his grandmother's funeral. But I, the, the name Ron Eckerman didn't, I didn't know that name because his mom remarried like before I was born, I think. So that wasn't her last name, Eckerman. My mom called me up one day when I was married, uh, to a different tour manager. <laughs> well, yes, that's the that's the part I want to get to because this is. It's uh, like okay, yeah, I have a thing for tour managers, I guess. Well, no, it's no, just I, it's I, a I, kind I, of it's yeah. a co- it's a coincidence, I think. I was, it's just, I was married to a, a a different tour manager. He was their Leonard Leonard Skinner's tour manager from ninety eight or nine until two thousand six, and my mom called me up one day and she goes, Carolyn, remember Barbara Jean? And I'm like, oh yeah, what about her? And she goes. Well, her son Ronnie, he, he had the same job with the Skinner boys or the the Skinners or whatever, and <laughs> I was like, "What?" You know. So anyway, I still never met him after after that. It was ten years after that, and I his mom was at my my dad's funeral, and um, I sat and we talked about how my husband and her son Ronnie had all this in common, and I said, "Well, I'll, I'll, give me his number. I'll have to call and compare stories, right?" Mm-hmm. And then I never did. Other things happened in my life. I never called and talked to him. And then one day in 2011, um, I'm goofing around on Facebook, and I, I saw this book being advertised. It hadn't been released yet. And I just friended him on Facebook, and we started talking immediately. And we it was crazy. We had these things in common. And then we had the band stuff in common. I was divorced, of course, by then, and he was in the process of getting his divorce. But we just started talking, and we didn't stop. It was like we we got on the – well, first we started emailing, and we just couldn't stop. And then we talked on the phone, and then we Skyped. We were, you know, across the country from each other. But, you know, that's basically how it happened. I'm probably dragging out too long. No, no, don't drag it out so because we, – we, we fell in love really quickly, and we, and, and we just found that uh, – you know, it wasn't just the Skinner thing in common. We were just a lot alike. Well, you know, uh, when I was reading the book, 
it was like you guys were teenagers. I mean, I it's like or college or whatever that those first sort of romances that you have where you talk all night and you can't mm-hmm. stop and you just don't care. You just want to keep talking and talking and talking. And and that's the feeling I got from your book when you guys described, uh, you know, sort of the, the way that you got closer through the Internet and then came. What was it? Thanksgiving, I think, was the first time you guys actually saw each other face to face. He was going to come for Thanksgiving and he was working for this company out in L.A. And there was a big um, thing that happened, a big brouhaha. That's right. Brouhaha. A big, a big brouhaha. Uh, something big happened and he couldn't come. So he came December the 18th. I, I remember I'm a dates person. I remember the dates. But yeah, so he came in December and then he said, wait, I want to stay till Christmas. And then he said, wait, I want to stay till New Year's. And then he was like, wait, I want to stay till Valentine's Day. Yeah. So yeah, he he never left. He did, He never left. He came. <laughs> yeah, he he, he that happened. moved right in. So you guys start dating and you're having just a regular, well, not regular relationship between you two, but you're having a relationship and, you know, you're, you're doing it where he's in Nashville for a while and then you guys decide you want a little time apart. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ron had a premonition about May 23rd. He did. That, that mm-hmm. kind of, you know, he had it even before he found out that he got that he had the leukemia, correct? Oh, 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 right. He had that. I think that was one of the reasons why he wanted to hurry up and write, turn it up. He kept dreaming that he was dead and it was May 23rd, 2013. And then there was some confusion with the date. There's somebody in the family who told me, you got that date wrong. It's actually the 22nd, but I have emails and stuff from him where he talked about May 23rd over and over. So I, it's it's just one day difference. It doesn't matter. But he had these premonitions that he was going to die on May twenty third, two thousand thirteen. And when we first started talking, he told me about that, and he said that's why he was kind of rushing to move in with me and stuff because he's like, I don't have a lot of time left. And he just he really believed that the dream was true, and it wasn't a dream about cancer or an accident or anything like that. He um he had an artificial heart valve, right? And he had that since two thousand one or two. And he had been told by a doctor in California that he might have to have a heart transplant. So he thought that his heart was going to give out on him. And he said, I just kept having this dream. And I don't know why I know the date, but I know I'm in the hospital and I'm dead. And so, yeah, th- that's the story about the premonition he kept having. But he, you know, he wasn't sick at all um, yeah. when he had that uh, dream. Okay, so then you guys sort of, you're, you're apart from each other, which yeah. leads us to the opening of the book, which I deliberately kind of kept in the timeline because, you know, uh, you got so close mm-hmm. and then you guys had an argument or something and then you kind of are responsible for, I guess, saving his life at that time, correct? Well, I... I don't want to take credit for that because I'm the one who upset him so much in the first place, you know. Right. I always felt really guilty about that. I was really mean to him and um, not through the whole relationship, but like the month or so before that I had been real mean to him. And so I don't want to say I'm responsible for saving his life, but right, right. I did I did um, call and get him some help. Right, so right. I guess, yeah, you could say that. But the, but, but the thing is that your book opens with, mm-hmm. with that story, with, with your argument and Ron trying to take his own life, I guess, in his garage with his car, carbon monoxide. Yep. Yeah. And uh, I know a lot of people might pick up the book and get to page three and go, why in the hell is she opening it like this? It, this is 
this is embarrassing for him. Why is she doing this? And the reason why I'm doing it is if you read on in the book, you'll see that's how he wanted to do it. He wrote the first 12 pages with me. Right. But that was, um, you know, he, um, you know, after his, as, as he went through the, um, the whole thing with the end of his life and really searching and learning things about himself, he kind of realized it's, you know, how crazy it is that you can want to die. And then only four months later, all you want to do is live. And you're just praying that you'll live, you know, and that you won't die from cancer. And so he kind of wanted to get that word out there to maybe help other people who might be feeling depressed or feeling suicidal. He wanted to tell people, don't take your life in your own hands, because two months from now, you could be wanting to live so much. Right, right. Well, and that's the thing about this book. I mean, uh, it's a love story. It's a story that anybody that's, that's facing those kind of issues uh, can can find solace in. It's also a book that people, you know, that are suffering from leukemia or, or anything else can, I think, learn a lot of lessons from this book and from uh, from Ron. But I think that the chapter closes with the statement you just made, which is, mm -hmm. here's a guy who wanted to die that four months later, you know, complete 180. That's all, you know, all he wants to do is live so right. th this occurs and you guys get back together mm -hmm. when 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 did you really start to notice that he wasn't doing well you know beyond the health problems he had had earlier you mean um i'm, I'm sorry can you rephrase that well uh, like the petechia started to show up oh, that. the red oh, yeah. red spots on his body and and oh, various yeah, other that. things that would end up you'd end up finding out later were the early stages of uh right aml when, or acute myeloid leukemia when, when we were in tennessee he had his skin would be a yellowish color so i thought that he had hep c but it, in fact uh jaundice is a is a uh, I can't think of the word. It's a symptom. Jaundice is a symptom of leukemia. The petechiae is what it's called, is the strange little red rash that could be on your ankle one day, on your stomach the next day, and it looks, um, it's not a raised rash and it doesn't itch or anything. It looks like someone took a red pin and went dot, 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 drew, drew dots on you is what it looks like. Mm -hmm. That is a symptom of extremely low platelets, which is a leukemia symptom also, and his extreme fatigue and you know, I took him when he was in Tennessee, when we were in Tennessee, I took him to the doctor and to the emergency room several times. And of course the fainting spells, um, that's a sign of low blood. But you know, he didn't have insurance and so they were just like, oh well, he's fine, you know, just make a doctor's appointment next week. And so they didn't do the appropriate test that they should have done. They should have done a CBC panel and that would have been the end of that. They, Right. They, they would have known right then that he had leukemia or some sort of bone marrow cancer. But, um, yeah, so he started having the signs, um, you know, a year before, before he was actually diagnosed. Since I met him, he had the signs. Right. But, but we just didn't know what it was. Mm -hmm. and, and being a guy with a heart valve, mm -hmm. those guys are probably thinking, oh, he's just not getting enough oxygen all the time or it's right. you know, whatever. And they just didn't do their due diligence. Right, and when his blood was too thin, they weren't thinking bone marrow cancer. They were thinking, oh, it's his Coumadin, his blood thinner that he takes for the heart, you right. know? And so it was just, um, it was a very unfortunate because if he had, if it had gotten caught sooner, he might still be here now. Right. And right. that's what's really sad about it. 
and um, I, I'm certain that if he had had insurance, they would have done every test known to mankind. Um, to you know, but they didn't, and and unfortunately, he's not here anymore. So yeah, it, it is what it is, you know. Yeah, yeah, it it is it is just awful, uh, you know. And and so he had to actually in Houston. It's mm-hmm. it's absolutely heartbreaking in your book where he knows what's wrong with him. Right. And they know what's wrong with him. Mm-hmm. And they won't do what's, I mean, they're telling him to wait until a certain date that they can treat him. And he's going, I may not be here then. Right. That's not a, that's not a viable treatment for what's going on here. Right. Right. Because he was told on April 8th that he needed to get into um, treatment within a week. And then, you know, I was on speakerphone. I wasn't in Houston at the time. And then, and then as soon as she found out he didn't have insurance, she was like, oh, well, never mind. You're going to have to wait. And, um, you know, we were just misinformed. Nobody told us that there was a program at MD Anderson. You know, MD Anderson's the top cancer center in the world with the most specialized leukemia department. They treat uh, 1,700 new leukemia patients every year. He had that resource right there less than, you know, 30, 45 minutes away. And everybody kept saying, oh, you can never go to MD Anderson. You don't have insurance. And so he ended up, you know, um, you know, he 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 just didn't get the treatment soon enough, and he didn't get the appropriate treatment soon enough. Right. I mean, he was in the county hospital and really kind of suffering. I mean, uh, not, you know, Ron was not necessarily a complainer from your book, you know. Right. He and was he, just happy to be getting treatment, and you know, he had to fake a heart attack to get in there. Right. Right. <laughs> He's because he knew if if I go in there with this heart. Uh-huh. And the valve, and I say, oh, I'm having a little chest pain. They're going to treat me immediately. He, and, he was such a hoot. He he went in there and he was so proud of himself, mm-hmm. and he was like, Oh yeah, I really put on an Academy Award winning performance. And um, <laughs> it was so funny. He was just so proud of himself. And they said, Well, everything looks okay with your heart. You must be having chest pain because you're so stressed out about something. What are you stressed out about? And he said, I'm stressed out because I have leukemia and nobody will treat me. So will you please get an oncologist in here? And then, and it worked because they, they, they treated him, you know, that they started his treatment. Uh huh. Yeah. So it it worked. Well, here, here, can you, I'll have you tell that story. I'm going to save the Ron Eckerman will kick your ass. If you come to his yard story for the very end. (laughs) Uh, folks, okay. if you're listening right now, you gotta, you gotta listen to the end. Cause one of the funniest stories you'll ever hear involves Ron Eckerman in his front yard at a is very, it really that, is it really that funny? I didn't yes, know it was it really is, that funny. It is so funny. It is so hilariously funny. It's not even funny. When you, when you love somebody so much and you have this mental picture of them doing this, it's, I, I didn't know if it would be that funny to anybody else. I thought it might be an inside joke. But it's like, yeah, you know, it is pretty darn funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just, no, it is hilarious. That's a tease, folks. You keep listening, you'll get to hear about that. But uh, he was at the um, lesser of the two hospitals, and not to cast aspersions on those people, but they probably just weren't equipped to handle uh, what Ron had in the way that they should, like they did at MD Anderson. I was right. very struck by your book when you started to describe it was kind of like Dorothy got to the Emerald City when you went to MD Anderson. It, it was like, you know, oh, well, you, you can pick whatever food you want. We understand you have leukemia, so your taste buds won't work. And you may want something and then two bites in, not want it. So you just order something else. And, uh, you know, 
everything that they did. Can you talk about the difference in what and what the MD Anderson people were like? Well, MD Anderson was like a five star hotel. Um, you know, I mean, <laughs> I mean, not really, but you know, it was really clean and beautiful and nice, and the people there really truly care about the patients, mm -hmm. and they really do. And you know, at the county hospital, it was just. You know, nobody was specialized in cancer or leukemia. The nurses, it was just sort of a, he was just on like a regular med surge floor. Right. So he was in a room with four other people. Here he's got leukemia. He's got no white blood cells. And he was in a room with three other people. One of them was, um, had, had kidney problems. Another guy had shingles. And he was there for a month. So there was a lot of people in and out of that room. And he was just exposed to so many germs. And I think the nurses really kind of didn't know what was going on. Like I went there one day and the, um, and the nurse said, he's in remission. He's, and I'm like, what? And she said, he's in remission. His platelets are up. Well, because he just had chemo, right? Well, no, no. She said he was in remission. His platelets are really high. Oh, they just gave him new blood? But they had just given him platelets. Yeah, transfusion. yeah. So, um, yeah, it, it was. It's 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 all the difference in the world. I can't even begin to describe the difference between the county hospital and MD Anderson. But you know, MD Anderson was. Um, we we were just really blessed with our for our first night there. The nurse was like, I've never seen anybody so excited to be getting into the hospital because Ronnie was so glad. And I was like, Well, you just should have seen where we just came from. Yeah. And um, it it was bad. It was bad. Well, even the doctor that you that you ended up finding out about the special programs mm -hmm. uh, at MD Anderson for people without insurance. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously they're a clinical hospital. Mm -hmm. You can't just walk down the street and say, do you have AML? Uh, oh good. Come on in here. Cause we'd like to do some mm -hmm. clinical research on you. Um, mm -hmm. Even that doctor immediately kind of sprang in and went, whoa, 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 whoa. No, we have programs for that. Right. And he was like, who told you that he couldn't go there? And I'm like, this other doctor and you know every, you know other people his mom's friends all said he can never go to MD Anderson so we never even tried and it was just a shame because he wasted oh from April 8th until April 8th until um, June the 6th he, he was admitted to MD Anderson at June 6th so that's almost two months you know well it is two months eight weeks that he could have been getting treatment Right, and and it and at the most critical time. Right. Um, well, just just it's just it's just a shame. Now, time spent in the hospital is another thing that struck me about your book, lady. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say this: you're a very special person because, look, I've been in hospitals. My mom was a nurse for forty years, and there's not much to do in a hospital. <laughs> Other than be in a hospital. And mm -hmm. you were there. Mm -hmm. I mean, God, it's just I'm reading your book and it's like Ronnie came home for two days and then started. He spiked a fever. So we had to take him back. Mm -hmm. And that process uh, and kind of talking about your time in a room with four other people at county. People, right. need, people need to understand when someone has leukemia, their ability to fight off infection is almost zero. It is zero. So yeah. any tiny infection, oh yeah, uh, the toenail infection that he had, anything can be life threatening. A cold <laughs> could be life threatening to you. Or even if you pick a little sore on your face or something, yeah, or, you know you and you know and it, it'll become infected. 
Mm-hmm. You know, he had to be careful brushing his teeth because, you know, you tend to brush your teeth kind of hard sometimes. He had to watch his gums, you know, I mean, any little tiny thing. Yeah. When, when you have the kind of leukemia he had. Now, there's other kinds of leukemias that, you know, there's the chronic ones. And then there, I don't know much about APL and ALL. I just know about AML, the one that he had. So that might not be 100% accurate about the other leukemias, but that with his, the kind that he had. It was just so dangerous. A, and, a, a bug bite could he could die from a bug bite. And, and and also to be clear, every time he would go back in, he would have to stay for another three to five days automatically. And that's not three to five total. That's three to five after his temperature went down. Sure. And yeah, I, and yeah. He he had to be stable, and then it's three to five days. And oh, by the right. way, if you spike during then, let's restart the clock. So you were in in the hospital with him. At all times, there was a period of time where the doctors flat out told you, you can't leave him alone for five minutes. Exactly. Because he could go from fine to feverish mm-hmm. and and that's it. Uh, yeah. Can you can you talk about the, the amount, the actual amount of time? Lady, I can't believe that you spent, there's people that work at the hospital that didn't spend nearly as much time as you did there. Oh, there I, I got the hus- I got the discount in the cafeteria because they thought I worked there. <laughs> <laughs> no, really, they knew I didn't work there. They just they just got to know me so well. Um, but um, oh yeah, it was like I got to know all the hospital employees. But no, I don't want any. I don't deserve any praise. I mean, I'm I'm not. Oh, well, I'm you, not. I'm not saying just, that you do or don't. Yeah. I'm just wanting to give people an idea. Yeah, I just you know you just do what you do when you love somebody. You either just do it or you don't. But um, you know, because you either like I like I said, we you either love somebody or you don't. I said that in the book, and I said that to him. But um, as far as the time in the hospital, okay, he was admitted on June the sixth. And I mean, I could sit here and go through, and then he was, because I remember all the dates, I could sit here and go through all of it. But basically, <laughs> basically from, I won't bore you with all that, but basically from June 6, 2013 to May 11th, 2014, I'm going to try not to cry. That's okay. That's oh, a, um, yeah, hey, I'm trying not to. He was actually <laughs> out of the hospital, like outpatient. If you were to add up the days, maybe five or six weeks we were out, maybe 30 days. But it wasn't ever in a row. The only time we were out for maybe two weeks in a row, I think, was September of 2013, I think. I would have to actually look at the calendar. But, yeah, it was um, it was the whole year. It, we lived there. I mean, we lived there because um, he kept having to, every time he got released, he was he would go back in usually within two days. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And uh, I just again, it's a love story. The the people <laughs> at the hospital started referring to you as the Eckermans. The Eckermans. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was very touched by the reactions of the people uh, in your book to mm-hmm. the way you guys would sleep together all the time. Oh yeah. And the doctors joked that they needed to, you know, because hospital beds are small. They're twin beds. Mm-hmm. And we would spoon each other, and the doctors would come in and just go, "Oh my God, we need to get you guys a queen size bed in here, <laughs> you know." And oh yeah, we got it. We need to start ordering better beds for people like the Eckermans. And you know, it was funny because we weren't actually married yet, but they didn't know. And and so, he he had put me down as his wife, you know, on all his documents and stuff. So they just assumed that we were married at that time. But yeah, we oh yeah, we were always um. 
cuddling up and then they were making jokes. The nurses would make jokes like, you better knock on the door before you go into Eckerman's room. Never know what's going to be happening in there. It was just a joke, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, just don't just don't come in the room when Judge Judy is on. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Apparently one of Ron's favorite shows was Judge Judy. And then he migrated to Shark Tank. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Alexis shows. Um, can you talk a little bit about the people in Ron's life, uh, you know, his, his childhood friend that kept coming up and, and then, uh, some of the, the other reactions, which weren't, weren't very pleasant. There's a, a guy that's attached to the band real closely that I'm not going to mention his name, but shame on him that just had nothing good to say and, and all that kind of stuff. Can you talk about the people in Ron's life? Oh, and yeah, how that guy, he, he's not attached to the band real closely now or anything, but back mm -hmm. then. Yeah. Right. I don't even want to say his name. No, let's well, not. You know, I mean, why, why give him the attention? It's cruel and mean, the things that he said. But um, you wanted me to talk about the friends yeah. in Ron's life. Well, um, oh, now I'm really going to cry. Yeah, Curry Grant was his friend uh, since they were three years old. Mm -hmm. um, their parents were friends, you know, so they were friends since they were three years old. And, man, and, and Jeff Dunham. His mm -hmm. friend since he was 15. He worked with Jeff at, I believe, in your interview with Ron, he talked about Wild West Productions. Uh-huh. And he that's where uh, Jeff got him into that. I think I think Wild West was Jeff's, um, it was his company, and he got Ronnie involved, I believe. I'm not 100% sure. But this is Jeff Dunham. It's not the ventriloquist. It's, no. it's a different Jeff Dunham. But, man, that guy, he was he lived here in Houston. But um, and he traveled a lot with his job. But when he was in town, I knew that if I called him, I, I I I would get like four words out, and he could tell by the sound of my voice that he was needed up there. He would drop whatever he was doing and come to the hospital, no matter what. And um, he, he was just really heartbroken the whole the whole the whole time. Um, he really did a lot to try to help Ronnie. They were friends since they were you know teenagers. Yeah. And then, of course, there was Curry Grant, and Ronnie's known him since he was three. That's I talked talked about him a second ago, but he flew in four or five times, I think. But as soon as we got bad news from the doctor, which was several times, Ronnie was very close to death several times, and it was a complete miracle that he pulled out of it. But man, Curry would be on a plane, and he'd be there. And then, of course, there was David Eckerman. You know, his cousin, his Dave, David Eckerman, his cousin, who lives um, you know, a couple hours away from Houston. He doesn't live right close, but he would call every day. You know, it was just um, it was just a beautiful thing because he uh, kind of just realized at the end of his life who his real friends were and, and who who, you know, who wasn't. And um, and um I don't know. I, I don't know what else to say about well, that. I think I'll I th start crying. If you, that's if you okay. Know. That's when all talk, right. When you talk about Curry and Jeff Dunham, I just don't know how I would have stayed sane without them. And of course, Curry's sister, Cindy, um, she just uh, practically lived with us at the hospital. I mean, she went home at night, but the last couple of months she was there and she had lost her husband at MD Anderson as well back in 96 or 7, so she knew what it was like. Right. So she was just a godsend and really helped us a lot. And um, so. Well, and some people, I think you also find out that a lot of people just don't want to deal with it. 
I mean, it might not even be. It's just it's too much for him. Uh, mm-hmm. I you know I don't understand that, but I know that that that's a reaction that a lot of people you know that they have. But mm-hmm. Ron's spirit. I mean, all throughout this book, mm-hmm. that guy <laughs> just. I mean, yeah, you know, you mentioned he had his down times, just like anybody else. But but for the majority of the time, wow, just. Just an an absolute fighter, uh, and and I I'm gonna say it again. I've said it to you before. While all this was going on, you guys were posting to Facebook and letting everybody know what was going on. And of course, you know we went through a little bit of it with you, where where there were times where you you would post, Ron is not expected to make it longer mm-hmm. than a few more hours. Yeah. Uh, yeah. and this happened two or three times. Mm-hmm. The way that this whole thing happened and the way that you two handled it was absolutely beautiful. It was a thing of, I mean, it's obviously one of the worst things that can happen, Mm -hmm. but it was done with such grace and love and reverence and respect. And just, it was, it was wow. Uh, Can you talk about Ron's spirit and just that impish, kind of has a goofball thing right when you need uh-huh. a goofball thing to happen and mm-hmm. the thing that he wrote you that just i mean i'm about to start crying the, the thing that he wrote me you are my bucket list yeah now here's a guy who's terminal mm-hmm. and i mean just i mean it just floored me yeah that was my birthday card his um uh his sister makes these cards um, she has these little machines and stuff. It's like a craft. It's a hobby thing. Uh-huh. She makes these beautiful cards, and he really felt like he wasn't going to be there on my birthday, so he had her make me that card. And it said, yeah, that's what it said. I um, I walked in. It was May the 7th. It was Wednesday, and um, she came to visit at the hospital, and she said, hey, you got to leave for a minute. So I did, and I came back in, and Ronnie said, I don't think I'm going to be here next week on your birthday. My birthday was May 13th and this was six days before and he handed me a card and a gift and everything and the card said you are my bucket list and uh, I, I still have it. I need to frame it and put it somewhere. It's in, you know, I've, I've got it with my stuff here but I am, um, it was precious, it's precious. It's just precious. But oh, you asked me to tell you about um, his spirit, his attitude. Yeah. Nope. I don't think people believe me sometimes but he was never angry. You know, most people that have cancer, most people that are hurting all the time, they at least yell and have some anger every now and then or um, frustration. Yes. And and he was always just so thankful to be alive that day. He, he never if he did have any anger, he showed it somehow when I was out of the room for a minute or something because he was never um, he never got pissy with the nurses. You know how people are. Oh, yeah. When you've been laying there for months, he never got rude with the nurses, except there was one time, but he had been given too much medication. So that was forgivable. But, um, and that was really toward the end. But um, he was always very kind, always said thank you to the nurses when they left the room every time. And one of the nurses told me, you you know, everybody up here loves taking care of Mr. Eckerman because they always called him Mr. Eckerman. They never called him Ron or Ronnie, whatever. But um, she said, every time we leave the room, he says, thank you. And we never hear thank you from, you know, because people are so sick. He was just so kind. And 
he wasn't, um, I mean, I can't say he wasn't scared of dying because I think everybody's scared of dying, but he wasn't, um, he knew that when it was his time that he was going to go. He didn't um, dwell on that date thing anymore because he made it past that date. So he didn't dwell on what date is it going to be or he didn't, um, he just wanted to make sure that he didn't have any enemies. He wanted to talk to people. He wanted to say goodbye in person. He didn't want um, people to come to a funeral and gather together afterward and talk about him. He wanted to see everybody and talk to him before he left. And I, I would be the same way. I would be the same way if I had terminal illness like that. Mm -hmm. But he was just so brave and um, he, he was just incredible. He really was. And um, Well, you have videos oh, yeah. of, of, first of all, one of the ones I like the best is the one where Happy comes on in the car. Yeah. And you shot some video, and here's a guy that, you know, what, 20 minutes earlier was in a hospital bed or whatever it was, uh, and he's he's doing feral there in the yeah. car. That um, was actually, I know exactly what you're talking about. That was April the 15th or 16th, so it was less than a month. That was actually on the way to the hospital, and, and we, um, I'm not, like, trying to correct you or anything, it was actually on the way to the hospital, and he was so low on bloods and blood and so low on platelets, he should have been like feeling really horrible, and he was feeling horrible. But emotionally, he was like, "Clap along if you feel." You know, he was singing the song. <laughs> it was so cute, you know. And I don't know whether it was a still photo or a video, but you guys went to like Red Lobster or something as a restaurant, and there's a picture of him like sitting across the table from you. Lobster. You, we, you, didn't, we, we didn't go to any restaurants. You were before. somewhere where he was eating, and it was hilarious because he was doing something with his food. <laughs> I don't remember. Well, Is that the picture in the book? No, no, it's not in the book. It's not in the book. It was during the. Uh, it was on Facebook. Oh, you know, I'm not remembering that. That might have been before he got sick because we couldn't go to restaurants. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, I know you guys. You you actually list in the book a lot of times where you go out and bring him something back. Right, right, yeah. right. Uh, I'll have to look. I'll have to look on Facebook and try to figure out what picture that is. <laughs> I also loved it when your mother, when when Ronnie said, I guess I'll never see, is your mother named Dorothy? Dorothy's not my mama. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and he said, I'll never see her again. And boom, she yeah. books a flight, Southwest flight, and she's there. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that is just wonderful. There's a lot of little anecdotal things throughout your book that just show what kind of person Ron was, where he would start singing or dancing. The fact that he could not remember lyrics to songs very well. And then at one point he, you guys had a nurse that, that had a, let's just say rather large posterior. Mm -hmm. And he started making up lyrics to knocking on heaven's door, referring to parts of her body and stuff. And there are anecdotes like this throughout that we could probably sit here for three hours and mm -hmm. just talk of the, the little golden nuggets that show you just what kind of guy Ron Eckerman was mm -hmm. uh, throughout this whole, whole thing. Now mm -hmm. I have to ask you this question and I know you're humble and you don't think you did anything special. Um, what, what do you think, makes you the kind of person or made you the kind of person that has that viewpoint because i think what you did 
is the most absolute spectacular thing that you can do for another person. The fact that you were madly in love with this guy, of course, is the reason. But but I don't think the average person would have done what you did. What do you think makes your attitude? What do you think like growing up or what 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 gave you that? That I don't know. That's a tough one to answer. I I just kind of looked at it like this. I mean, during the whole time when people were like, "Oh, Carolyn, I can't believe you're doing this." And I'm like, "Well, what else would I do? I mean, what's the alternative? Go run, you know?" And and sometimes I wondered you know, because I had other husbands and stuff, and I wondered, did I love him enough to do that? And I, I don't think so. I, <laughs> yeah. I think it was just because I loved him so much. I don't think it has as much to do with, um, you know, um, my upbringing or anything like that. I think it just has to do with how much I loved him. But I, I can't imagine doing anything any differently. Um well, and I think that's the beautiful thing about it to me is that it's not necessarily something you even processed. Yeah, it wasn't a chore. It wasn't. It was just what our life became. And at first, I didn't know he was going to be in the hospital for a year. I didn't know how serious AML was. And, you know, I didn't know that much about it. I had read about it, but I did not know that it was going to require 24-7 care. I didn't know that. Um, you know, you see people with other kinds of cancers and they go get their chemo like outpatient and sometimes they go right back to work um, and you know you see people out in public with their with a bald head and their cap on and their shirt that says cancer sucks and they've got cancer but they're out walking around at the mall doing normal stuff and that's just not what AML is so when I came down to Texas I figured um, okay you know I mean I would have never taken a job with that company if I had known that because I, you know, I made a commitment and it was with a mortgage company, right? And they paid for my class and for my license. And then as it turns out, I couldn't work at all. So I would have never, if I, if I had been more aware of what it was really going to be like, then I wouldn't have done that, you know, to that company. But well, but that's also, life, you know, I mean, I also, yeah, I also didn't know that I wasn't going to have any help at all. So I didn't know it was going to be all on me. I thought maybe his mom and I might take shifts or something. And that's just not how it turned out. So, but anyway, back to the original question. I don't know any other thing I could have done. Um, I, you know, it's, it's just what you do. You do what you do when you love somebody. And I know a thousand percent he would have done the same for me if I was the one who was sick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I just think that... Uh you know, um, AML is, I think, something we need to talk about because people hear leukemia and mm -hmm. they don't necessarily automatically think of, of what AML is, which is acute myeloid leukemia. And it is one of, if the, not the worst leukemias, it's one of the worst cancers mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. have. Uh -huh. And uh, can you talk about that? Because you know way more about it than I do. Well, you've you've got your um, just in a nutshell, sort of. You got your chronic leukemias, and those are the ones where you can go get chemo, and you can literally go two years without any. You're fine. Um, I met people up at the hospital, you know, whose husbands or wives or whatever were had chronic, and so that can go on. You can have that twenty years, thirty years, with the acute leukemias. 
Um, it's just much faster growing, and there's APL, ALL, and AML, and AML is like the big one. And, um, you know, basically what happens is, is that um, your cells inside of your bone marrow, they don't ever, they all start out the same, and then they don't mature into what they're supposed to be. They don't mature into white blood cells, red blood cells, or platelets. They just don't ever mature, and so they, they're like running around like, kindergartners at a, at a university not knowing what to do and so that, that's how it was described to us by the doctors <laughs> that's how they described it to us yeah and so since they don't know what to do they become cancer cells so yeah it just keeps the body from making red blood platelets and and you know, yeah I gotta have transfusions all the time and and then it brings you down your immune system to zero and um, and then the chances of it spreading it's it usually spreads to the brain first but you know, and then it also, you know, it can spread pretty quickly to other organs, but luckily that didn't happen. So, and uh, this is something that when when they actually finally came up with the AML diagnosis uh-huh. for Ron, they gave him how long to live? Well, he had MDS first, which is myelodysplastic syndrome. And that is the precursor um, to right, yeah. to AML, and it is a chronic form of leukemia. And people can have MDS for years, but it's a little bit more severe than the than the than the leukemias that start with a C. Um, but it, it and, and apparently Ronnie did have that for a long, long time and didn't know it. Um, when I went digging through some of the paperwork, I found his blood work from 2010. And mm-hmm. when I showed it to the doctor, they were like, oh, my God. You know, he's had this a long time. But um, you were asking about life expectancy. Well, when um, you have AML and then there, it, it, it gets really, I could turn this into a really complicated talk, but there are all these subcategories under that, too. And he had, there's different mutations of the different genes. And he had a mutation in a... Um, a deletion of chromosomes five and seven. Mm-hmm. So, um, and <laughs> don't really, I don't really know what that means. I just heard it so many times. But he had AML, but he also had a rare, rare form of, ray, of AML under that. So, yeah, basically four to six weeks. If there's no treatment, then four to six weeks. And then if there's treatment, then the treatment can kill you because the chemo that they give you is so heavy, it can destroy all your organs. Right. Right. And and at a certain point, uh, new blood won't help you because the the body is just consuming it and destroying it the second it gets in your bloodstream. That doesn't happen very often. Um, that That's when the body becomes refractory. Yes. Yeah. That, that actually doesn't happen very often. That happened to him. But he was... Um, that doesn't happen that often. Most of the people who have AML, they die way long before he did. I got gotcha. um, it, 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 it. Like um, they die from pneumonia or an infection. But every well, yeah. time he every time he got pneumonia or an infection, he he kept living. Well, and your book makes it very clear uh-huh. that, and even the doctors say it a couple times in the book that the majority of people don't die from leukemia. Right. They die from an associated failure of an organ. That that is mm-hmm. caused by the leukemia. Exactly. Exactly. Oh. So he actually, he lived, even though he, he fought it for a year and that's not a very long time, but at the same time, it's a very long time. But in, considering the, the state that his 
um, you know, his, um, oh, I try not to cry. Considering how bad off he was, he lived a long time. Right. There, there's a, a support group for AML caregivers. It's not just for cancer caregivers. It's AML, and it's not it's not in person. It's online, you know. Mm -hmm. But I log on to that and look at that, and it's just supporting pe people being emotionally supportive, asking questions. And there are some days when I feel so lucky because I I see people saying, oh, my husband was diagnosed three weeks ago and he lost his battle this morning. Seriously. Yeah. Um, just one day last week, I looked and this someone had died four days after they were diagnosed. And then there are the people who go into, those are the days that I feel so lucky that I had him for a year. Mm -hmm. And then there are the other ones who go into remission and they get their transplant and they're like, okay, and they're surviving it. But and, and those are the days when I'm like, well, why didn't that happen to him? You know, it's hard to be happy for other people sometimes uh, because, yeah. you know, so I just have to take it, um, just realize that it happened the way it was supposed to. And uh, it's just really tough sometimes. I get, I get angry and upset. You know, I said earlier that he never got angry. I think it's because I was getting angry for him. <laughs> <laughs> you were angry enough for both of you. I was. <laughs> I really was. I really almost lost it a couple of times. But... You know. Well, I know that it, it, I mean, I can't even begin to like imagine what that was like for you. Uh, so I won't ask you to go through that again. But what, what advice do you have for people that uh, are going through this themselves, you know, be it AML or uh, anything else? What advice do I have for them? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, to how to get through this or, you know, what helped you get through it as best you could. The best thing I know is to keep them laughing, you know, keep them laughing. And you've got to cherish every second because, you know, with an AML patient, even if you're given four weeks or six weeks or two months, um, you could still um, spike a fever and, and die in an hour, you know, you, you never know. I mean, I mean, there were times when I walked out of the room to go down to the cafeteria or to call somebody or whatever. And sometimes I was worried, like, I hope he's still there when I get back to the room just because it can happen so fast. Well, and your book mentions an instance that the doctors referred you to of a woman that, you know, had spiked a fever and thought, oh, I'll just get there eventually. No, there isn't any eventually. It, it happens right. so fast. I guess that's the point I'm trying to make about AML is... Uh, uh, that was because of that heavy-duty round of chemo. And, and, you know, since he was at MD Anderson, they try um, really, really more dangerous chemos and stuff. They're, not, not more dangerous, but it's the most powerful they have in the world. And so the woman that died from a fever was involved in the exact same um, trial he was doing. He was doing a cl clinical trial chemo, and um, and yeah, she was. Uh, he was doing this this clinical trial where only six people, I think, had done it, mm -hmm. and three had died, and two had lived. And he was like, "Okay, fine. I, I want to be the third one to live. That way, you can tell people it's 50 Fifty percent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you're 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 right. She was just left alone and. They had told me, do not leave him alone for five minutes. 
because the woman had started, you know, hallucinating and didn't call the police in time. Yeah, I mean, yeah, she was fine that day, and then she was gone. I didn't mean to. I I didn't mean to interrupt. I'm sorry. No, no, no. That's why I wanted you to tell that story because. I just think people need to be very aware of the fact that AML is is bad news. And, uh, you know, it's something that, that I think the average person just doesn't realize that th- this is something, you know, when you hear that somebody has a, an, an inoperable brain cancer or something, mm-hmm. you go, oh, okay, I get that. That's bad. Mm-hmm. But this is something that isn't, isn't going to show up like that is going to show up. And, yeah. and it's just... Um, really a nefarious evil evil thing uh, yeah. you know yeah. um, it's just different there's no stage one through four people kept asking what stage does he have one through two or three or four and you know leukemia is not staged that way you know it's no it's just not right. I mean you, you could call it stage four because stage four means in all four quadrants I mean just to make it easier to understand where it is and it's all over the body I mean your blood is all yeah. over yeah. so it's, yeah so it's, it's an all over cancer for sure affecting everything mm-hmm. uh, can you tell the Ron Eckerman come over here and I will kick your ass in my front yard story that people have been dying to hear. Uh, hey, before you tell that story, I got to tell you, Ron had one of the most gentle voices I know. I've ever heard in my life. It was tranquil. It was like a mountain stream. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just so relaxed and just I could listen to him talk forever. I know. Uh, just I know. so. OK, so Ron is how old? Like seven, eight. Yeah. Oh, before I tell you this, that's another thing about his voice. I would tell people, I would call people and, you know, say, you know, Ronnie's doing really bad. He's, oh, and I would tell about how horrible he was doing. And then, you know, well, can I talk to him? Yeah, but he's very tired, you know. Then I would hand Ronnie the phone and, he, you know, he had this voice. He would all of a sudden grab the phone and go, well, hello. And, and oh, hey, I'm doing fine. I'm going to kick this leukemia's ass. And he sounded like he was doing a radio show or something and he sounded so healthy and it's almost like I think people thought well Carolyn's exaggerating but you know he just he always put on you know and then he tried extra to put on a show because he wanted people to think he was okay but I had to say that about his voice back to the story about him kicking people's asses <laughs> um, when when he was about four years old I guess his parents told him, you know, his brother was a baby, his sister was a little older, she was in kindergarten or first grade maybe, and he was about four, and he he was trusted to stay out in the front yard. And so um, he, he went over to the edge of the yard, and he would ask these people, the kids, when the school bus stopped and the older kids walked by, he didn't have anybody to play with, you know, uh-huh. go, hey, will y'all come over to my yard and play with me? And they'd go, no, Ronnie, you know, and he said he got pissed off one day. And he put on a rodeo outfit and a cowboy hat. <laughs> and he said he went out and he stood. And when those kids came by, um, the kids got off the school bus and came by. And he stood at the very, very, very edge of the grass. And he said, hey, you queers. <laughs> Didn't even know what queers meant. Didn't know what queers meant. He goes, hey, you queers, get over here so I can kick your ass. Come over to my yard so you so I can kick your ass. And the other kids were going, well, why don't you come over here so we can kick your ass? And he said, he put his hands on his hips and he goes, because my parents won't let me leave my yard. That's why. So you come over here so I can kick your ass. <laughs> and so it was so cute because he was like abiding by the rules of his parents, but all the while still, you know, wanting to kick people's asses. 
And it's just so funny. He said his mom ran out in the yard and said, Ronnie, you can't be calling people queers. Do you even know what that means? And he said, big dummy, right? It means just a dummy. And she's like, no. But he said, you know, the kids just taunted him because they were like, oh, yeah, big tough guy. You're going to kick our ass, but you're going to, you know, your mommy won't let you leave the yard. <laughs> it's just funny. <laughs> I think that. I think that is one of the most funny stories I've ever heard. And I think it's mostly, you know, it's funny to think of, you know, a little kid standing at an edge of a yard in a cowboy suit. But <laughs> but it's it's more funny to have the other kids going, yeah, Ronnie Eckerman, you know, he, he'll kick your ass if his mommy lets him leave the front yard. <laughs> oh, okay. man. Oh, All right. God. That well, was so cute. So that became a big joke. And that's what... Uh, well, I mean, it was a big joke in the first place, but he kept saying, yeah, cancer came in my yard and I'm going to kick its ass, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's, and it's throughout the rest of the book, is yeah. I'm going to kick cancer's ass. It came in my <laughs> front yard. Well, now it's time for the exciting part of the show where we do the lightning round. What's the lightning round? The lightning round is where I ask you a whole bunch of questions that you can answer really quickly. You may oh. have answered some of them. This is fun. This isn't, this isn't, I ask, I do these to everybody. You do? Yeah. I must have missed it when you asked. Well, maybe I didn't do it. I think I did do it with Ron. Maybe at the I'm end or something. I'm pretty sure, yeah, at the very end of it is when I always do it. So that's what we're doing now. Okay, so Let me get a drink of water. So I just have to like, it's one of those things where we have to say the first thing that comes to our head. No, no. Oh. Just oh. You just answer the question. It's they're oh, they're okay. they're real short. Ronnie, they're short though. Yeah, they Ronnie, won't. And I, Ronnie and I used to do that we, at the hospital. Let me get, you know, it gets boring. We'd play Scrabble, but we'd also play little word games mm -hmm. with each other. So that's what I thought it was. I thought I had to answer in like a second. No. Yeah. no. Okay. If I was mean, then you would, but I'm not mean. Okay. 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 <laughs> First car you ever had. Me? Yeah. Um, <laughs> let me see. It was the first car. Oh, God. Okay. I was trying to think because my... I drove my mom's car for a while, then I drove my brother's car, but my first actual car was a Chrysler Cordoba. Remember? Rich um, Corinthian leather. Yes, and Ricardo Montalban yeah. used to advertise it, and it had a V8 engine, and it got like 10 miles a gallon. <laughs> yeah, but my dad got that for me when I went to school at TCU, and he wanted me to have a safe car, and it was big, and it was um, that's what he wanted me to have. It was used, and it was, I was, uh, it was like an old lady car, sort of. But it was, yeah, kind of cool, though. But that is correct. 1982. That is correct. Chrysler Cordoba. Mm -hmm. That is the correct answer. Uh, I like what they've done to my car. That's, that's what he used to say. He I, did. I like what they've done to my car. Yeah. It's so funny. Rich Corinthian leather, which Corinthian leather is not leather. <laughs> it's it's actually if you look it up when it was first uh used on cars it's like a material that's scuffed up to be made to look like leather how funny and so anyway oh my gosh. okay first record you ever bought with your own money it was something skinnered it must have been um believe it or not isn't that funny um mm -hmm. i loved leonard skinner when i was little uh -huh. I, well, my brother was 10 years older so because it wasn't my era of music i was like well, I was nine years old when the plane crash happened, so it wasn't my kind of the first probably that golden platinum that came out. Remember the album yeah. called Golden Platinum? I think yeah. it came out about nineteen eighty and I was so I was like eleven or twelve. That was probably it, yeah. 
That is correct. <laughs> when they make the last tour into a major motion picture, who will play you? <laughs> okay, let's see. Who would play me? Probably Renee Gelwiger. What's her name? Renee, Renee Zellweger. Zellweger. Renee yeah, Zellweger. She, yeah, because she gains and loses weight for all those roles. So she could... <laughs> She could be like skinny at the beginning and then get fatter and fatter. <laughs> that that is correct. Uh, but you know, uh, now who would play Ron? Oh my gosh! Um, you know, I don't know. Do you know that? Um, you know the picture of me and him in the book. Where it was Thanksgiving and it's his birthday. Yeah. Everybody who saw that picture said he looked like that Sutherland guy. The older one, not the son. But Donald, the Donald Sutherland? People said he looked like that. I don't think he looked like that in real life. Let's see. Who would play him? I don't know. Uh, you know, it just, it, it would, somebody, they could probably make him up to look more like Ron. Yeah. You know, but. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I can't, th I, I, that, I can't answer that one real quick. I don't know. That is correct. Okay. <laughs> Your favorite Leonard Skinner song. Mine? Uh-huh. Well, like, Call Me the Breeze is my favorite to, like, drive down the road and, like, scream out loud. And, you know, and not scream out loud, singing. I mean singing, not actually screaming. Uh -huh. But Coming Home was always, um, when I was a kid and stuff, uh -huh. that song Coming Home was always my favorite. That is correct. Thank uh, you. Uh, what is your favorite thing to do to pass time in a hospital? Oh, my gosh. What, Judge Judy. <laughs> <laughs> do you go online on YouTube and watch? Uh, by the way, that is correct. Mm -hmm. the, do you go online and watch the Judge Judy clips? Because if you go online, I literally sit there for hours sometimes and just because they only have it by the you know, you can't watch a whole episode. You can just watch the one case and they'll say stupid girl sues herself or whatever. <laughs> and yeah. and and then it just shows that one Oh God! I watch it for just forever. I love Judge Judy. Oh yeah, I, I we we used to watch that. I mean, she came on at twelve and four, and it was two episodes, so we had to watch her for two hours a day. But there were some times that I we I, we logged on and watched that. But I have not watched her um, since since he passed away. I haven't watched her. Um, I, it's just I don't I don't know. I well maybe I did once or twice. No, you're, you're doing just, you're doing things during the day now. Yeah. Yeah. But um, she still comes on like, you know, late at night. But um, but yeah, I haven't watched it since since he passed away. But um, yeah, I, have, I know what you're talking about. There's there. things that she says every episode that I'm just waiting. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, mm -hmm. you know, what is it? Uh, she always says, listen, I know you think you're smart, but as smart as you think you are, you're never, ever going to be as smart as me. What do you think I was born yesterday? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then there's one that's it's it's like uh beauty is skin deep, but stupid goes all the way down to the bone. Oh yeah. And mm -hmm. and and I love it when she she gives young ladies advice. Uh-huh. Miss, look at him. You're better off without him. I mean, it's just awesome. Anyway. She is she's so funny. He just loved watching that. That was so funny. Okay, now what is up next for Carolyn Day? How are you doing? Oh. What do you? I mean, is it a day at a time still, yeah. and just yeah. kind of? 
Yeah. It, it's I mean because it's not even been six months, has it? Or just it was, just barely over six months. Yeah, it was six months on November eleventh. Mm-hmm. Uh, he met, he died on May eleventh. I still feel like I'm kind of early in the recovery process. I have um or in the grieving process. I um have good days and I have bad days. When he first passed away, I um I thought I was doing well and I thought I was being strong, but looking back now, I was not doing well. And I, I went and stayed with my mom a few months. And looking back now, I wasn't doing well at all. And um and then I, when I started writing the book, that's when I started really processing what had happened and um then I started working again a couple months ago cuz I knew that he wouldn't want me to to just like stop living. Mhm. And I just kept remembering him, you know, wanting us to get that dog. And so, you know, wanting us to get the dog requires, you know, having a job, having a place, you know, getting your life going again. Right. So, um you know, um, I wasn't doing very well the first couple of months. I mean, I wasn't suicidal or in a straitjacket or anything like that. But it, and it's it, it's funny how when when you lose somebody and everybody gives you all this advice about what they think you need to do to grieve, and you know nobody can tell anybody else how to grieve. And um, you know, I just had to I just had to kind of get, and I'm still getting through it. It's hard. I've got days that I can't stop thinking about him. Uh huh. I just can. I think about him all day, and I'm not. I don't talk about him like to the people at work because they don't know. They didn't know him. I don't talk, but to my friends and family, I, I still talk about him quite a bit. I, he's still alive, you know, in my uh, everyday conversation. But you asked what's next for me. I, I mean, um, yeah, I don't know. I'm back to working again, and you know, um, you know, I did the book because I wanted to. Uh, finish what he started, you know, because he, he, he wanted to write a book. I wanted to finish what he started. And then there have been some times, Tom, that I have thought, it, it, as recent as today, I thought maybe I shouldn't release this thing because it's so personal. It, a lot of it is so personal. But, um, you know, I just remember how gung-ho he was on leukemia awareness and about um, helping other people. And it's like, you know, it, even though some of the book is 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 a little too personal, and some people might be like, I d didn't need to know that, but if it helps just one person be encouraged to go and sign up to be a bone marrow donor, if it just helps one person um, go give blood and platelets at their local hospital, or if it just helps one person who might be a caregiver to somebody with cancer. Or if it just helps somebody learn how to treat somebody when they have cancer. Or you know, maybe somebody's got petechia and they don't even know what it is. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, if it helps just one person, then it's worth it because, you know, it's, I don't know. I, Look, I, I, I read the book. There was nothing in it that made me flinch or whatever. It, uh -huh. it, it to me, was a very honest story. I was struck by the fact that your book and the way that you tell it, is it's really refreshingly uh, unvarnished with like mm -hmm. you're not trying to write a Nathaniel Hawthorne novel here mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. you're you're not writing a fiction thing and I love the balance of this book because it is very emotional but your viewpoint on everything seems very even-handed to me in mm -hmm. other words there's a lot of points in the book where you come to a point where you have to make a decision or you and Ron are going to have to make a decision together 
and you actually go into both sides of the argument kind of like well on the one hand we wanted this but mm -hmm. it wasn't practical for these reasons or whatever mm -hmm. and i think that makes the book a lot easier to understand it makes the book a lot more human a lot more real Mm -hmm. And I don't feel like you had an agenda in telling this story. So, I mean, mm -hmm. I, I don't think anybody I, I would strongly encourage you to release the book because I just think it's an, an amazing story. Yeah. And I think you told it, it, it. I just I tip my hat to you for oh. for sharing the experience in the way that you did. I mean, in addition to uh, it's just one of the most loving I don't even want to call it a gesture because I know on your part it wasn't a gesture. It's just you doing what you do for somebody that you're in love with. But mm -hmm. just really, I think a lot of people could learn uh, from the example that that you and Ron kind of lived. I, yeah, I hope so. I hope so. But But people are so insensitive sometimes because they're like, well, you knew he was going to die. You know, and it's like... Yeah, I knew, but that doesn't make it any easier. I had to go back. I felt like half of a person kind of walking around after he passed away. I felt like something was missing, you know. And so the first few months, I decided I wanted to be with my mom. And so I went back to Fort Worth, and um, I thought I was doing okay. But I look back, and I realize I wasn't really doing that okay at all. Um, you know, my birthday was just a couple of days after he passed. And then um, I went, I stayed in Houston for a few days, and then I went to my mom's. Then I had to come back to Houston to pick up, um, you know, he wanted to be cremated, so I had to pick up the ashes and bring them back to, you know, take him home, take him home with me. And then the most bizarre thing happened that kind of really set me into a depression a little bit. Um, he had been gone a couple of weeks, maybe three weeks. It was before the end of May. And it was the, the most strange thing happened, and it just upset me. His mom called me one Friday and said, you'll never believe what happened. And I said, what? And she said, well, you know, Thursday night is poker night for her. And um, she said, I went to poker last night, and all my friends knew I was depressed and everything. So when I got there, there was 40 to 50 people there, and they had a surprise party for her and it was like a surprise memorial service and I was like I've never heard of a surprise funeral before but you know Ronnie made it Ronnie made it very clear that he didn't want to have a service and what blew me away a little bit was that you know it's like I, why wasn't I invited and you know and to be honest with you um, I mean his brother was there and his mom was there and um, it's and all these people and they were having a service for Ronnie and it was like she got gifts and stuff it was weird but um, I I was blown away that I, I why, why wasn't I invited what did I do wrong you know and um, and and so it really made me feel so unappreciated yeah. you know? and, and, and the thing is is you know and the, it, it just really sent me into depression I'm like I can't believe there, there was a funeral held without me there are you kidding and she said, well, you would have been invited, but none of my friends know your phone number. And I'm like, you know, it wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have hurt anybody to call her and say, I want to check and see how Carolyn's doing. What's her number? So it was just weird. And it, that kind of was a big setback because I thought I was doing okay. And then, of course, his brother called and said, oh, we didn't know about it till that day. That's not why you were invited. I don't know. Have you ever heard of a surprise funeral? I haven't. I've never heard of a surprise funeral with gifts. 
Well, all I can say about that is when Ronnie passed away, all my friends said, Carolyn, what can we do for you? You know, because they knew there wasn't a funeral, so there was no place to send flowers, things like that. And I told them, what can we do for you? You know, even though I hadn't worked in a year and I was broke, I wasn't going to accept anything from friends. I said, if you want to do anything, just donate money to the Leukemia Foundation or MD Anderson if you want to do something for Ronnie in memory of him. I I wouldn't have accepted bracelets or gift certificates for shopping. I thought that was odd. But the whole year, it, it that was just, um, I didn't you know put much about it in the book. I touched on it a little bit. And what is in there is sort of like a tip of the iceberg yeah. So, um, yeah. of well, what, I, it, what I did put in there because I didn't want it to become, when I first wrote it, I wrote all my feelings came out and it would have been, the book would have been 40 to 50 pages longer. But I went back and took out a bunch of stuff because it's like, wait, this isn't a story about mother and her son. It's about me and him. It's, it's about leukemia. And so I, what I did leave in was just a little bit. There's one chapter that kind of tells the whole story, but I didn't want to go on and on about, you know, but, but the whole funeral party thing is just indicative of how the whole year was, if you know what I mean. Everybody is going to need to go out and get the book, The Last Tour. And uh, the links will be, of course, all over our website. And uh, get it now, today, and then get it for somebody that you know. It'll um it'll be available on Amazon. You know, I I just went the Amazon route with it because I knew if you go through a traditional publisher, it takes forever, and then plus you give them the rights, and I didn't want anybody messing. That's my thoughts and my heart and soul, and I didn't want anybody telling me oh, we want this to read this way. It's like no, this is my story, so it'll be available on Amazon. And I think if you just put in the last tour, love, laughter, tears, I th I think it just comes up. It's it's called the last tour colon. Love, Laughter, and Tears, you know, by Carolyn Day. And that's the punctuation colon, not a human, not, not a human <laughs> colon. I just want to make that clear. I think also, you know, people can just go to, to my website or I'm sure mm -hmm. Carolyn's Facebook page and I will have the links on the, the podcast. If, you've, if you're listening to this, you probably have already been to the page and you can just go back to it and click and you'll go right straight to her Amazon page. But it's Carolyn Day, C-A-R-O-L-Y-N-D-A-Y. And of course, it's uh, the last tour. And uh, Carolyn, thanks for spending the time with us, and thank you for writing the book. Oh well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I've got a question for you, though. Okay. You read the book. What was your favorite part? <laughs> well, I have to tell you. Uh, Come in my yard, so I'll kick your ass. That's my favorite part. Yes, but I think uh, you know, in in terms of of your experience with Ron. I don't know that I could name one. There were so many, but I'm going to tell you what, that you are my bucket list oh. is just so poignant. It's just so, you know, uh, it's just, I, you know, like I said, I, I was tearing up and I'll just go ahead and I don't normally tell people this kind of crap, but, uh, Carolyn sent me the galleys or whatever to her book. Um, and I opened it up after a very, very late night and read it straight through without, putting it down except to go to the grocery store to get coffee so that I wouldn't fall asleep reading the rest of it. Um, so happy that I did. Oh, thank you. That's a, that's such a compliment. Thanks so much. You know, and that's the, the thing about this book is that it's so funny. Uh, just, uh, you know, again, tip of the cap. It's a, a, an incredible, incredible tale. 
and thank, uh, you. thank you for sharing it and uh you know best of luck to you and if you ever need anything give us a call and if nothing else we will stand on the edge of our yard and threaten to kick people's asses who come oh. into the yard for you <laughs> that's hilarious oh i also want to make sure everybody knows that it's um the proceeds go to the leukemia foundation so it is for a good cause and I've priced it at like, you know, fourteen ninety nine or fifteen ninety nine, something like that. I've tried to price it real reasonably. But you know, it's a, all the proceeds go for a good cause and maybe it might be able to help somebody else. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much, Carolyn. Oh, thank you. Hi, I'm Tom Gully, host of the Tom Gully Show, and I'm here to talk to you about the most amazing phenomenon. Uh, you see, although thousands download each episode of the Tom Gully Show. Not that many actually like our show on Facebook. So we'd like to try and do something to get more likes and uh, hey boss, never fear I got this one solved, you know. Oh, Vinny. Great. Uh, folks, this is Vinny. He does things for the show from time to time, uh, most of which we can't talk about. Uh, Vinny, what's your solution? Okay, what we do is we get a cute little kitty cat, all right? Then, if we don't get enough likes within about five minutes, I twist its little head until it pops. Oh, oh, oh good, good Christ, no. We're not doing something like that. What, what, makes you, what makes you think something like that would even work? Well, it works when you use a kid. Instead of a kitty cat. Folks, we'd appreciate it if you'd go and like the Tom Gully Show on Facebook. We'd like to thank Carolyn Day for talking with us and for writing the book, The Last Tour. Pick it up on Amazon.com. You can find links on our website or on Carolyn's Facebook page. And all the proceeds go to the Leukemia Foundation. Please get this book today for yourself or someone you know. Folks, we'd really appreciate it if you'd share this on your various Facebook pages. Trying to spread the word means trying to spread our, our little show here. We'd appreciate it if you'd like the Tom Gully Show, not me, because liking me would be crazy. But the show, because, of course, liking the show is admirable and smart. Uh, you can do that on Facebook, too, if the mood strikes you. And, of course, there's always the TomGullyShow.com. And that's where you can find everything there is to find about the show. Highly recommend if you do go to the TomGullyShow.com on your mobile device, Go to the bottom of the page where it says request website version because the website version is like a million times better than the mobile version. And all you got to do is click that. And then the website version is the mobile version. You know, logically. 
There's the Tom Gully Show store. By the way, the holiday season, the Tom Gully Show store. You can find that on my website. I'm telling you what, if you're wondering what to get me this year, get yourself something from the Tom Gully Show show store. See, because then you get something for you, and I get a couple bucks. That's the gift. That's like a gift for a bus, both of us. I don't have to get you anything. And then... I'll keep explaining that concept because it's genius. Uh, And we always encourage you to subscribe on iTunes for free because if it's free, it's for me. Follow us on Twitter at Atomic Palooka 2 so I can increase my clout and cred ratings because if I get enough points, we're all going to go to the aces with Reg Dunlop. That'll do it for tonight. I'm out of here. I got to go talk to some people. I'll talk to you much later. Each night, Jay Johnson Brings us in with the Truth Wagon, and you can go to jjohnsonmusic.com and check out the Jay Johnson scene. By the way, tonight I'm going to go to Love and War in Texas and have dinner at the Grapevine location and then see Jay Johnson and Tom McElvain. It's going to be awesome. We'll take you out, as we always do tonight, uh, with uh, Catch-22 Blues by the Hitman Blues Band. Go to hitmanbluesband.com or hitmanbluesband.net. If you go to hitmanbluesband.net... <laughs> I think you can get like nine free blues songs from those guys for free just for signing up their mailing list. And they only like mail you something once a month. So it's like a deal. Do it and tell them Tom sent you. And we will see you next time. Well, the bucket lifts a twig for a dog that's nothing big, but he don't want to. And the dog can't grab a cat Or a coon can do all that But he don't want to And I dream of you at night While you hold your baby tight But he don't want you You can see it in his eyes From the way he tells you lies But he don't want you